0: What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hindsight being 2020, I'm in awe of the bravery that we both had to do this. And if you would have told me back then that we would have started a company together, gotten married six months later, had our first child a year and a half after that, our second four years later, I would then take the role of CEO. Uh, We would go through what we've just gone through in the COVID crisis, and we would still be meeting up at 5 p.m. to play backgammon and have a margarita. and be married, I think I probably, you probably would have lost me. I would have lost the plot on that. That doesn't sound like a believable story to me. Um, So yes, it was a big decision. I think that um, we came to it very carefully.
1: You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Lagorio Chafkin. Today's episode, Culture at Work, It's Complicated. Risk assessment, emergency preparedness, contingency planning. Call it what you like. Most businesses have strategies for future-proofing their operation. But for the company whose CEO is my guest today, there was no tabletop projection of risk or disaster scenario that included the one thing that could completely crush her business, a crisis in which humans worldwide could no longer gather for events. Of course, that happened. And for Eventbrite's co-founder and CEO, Julia Hartz, it sunk in clear as day, right as the pandemic was declared, that the precise scenario they hadn't foreseen could completely halt event ticket sales online. And Eventbrite had had this one business model since it launched in 2006 in San Francisco. Hartz took her company public 12 years later, and it had grown to nearly 1,000 employees when the pandemic hit. In our interview, she's completely candid about her company's crushing choices in 2020, the challenging decisions that followed, how she stabilized the company, and then set it up for a remarkable turn into the future. Part of that stability came from everything she built into the organization up until that point, a resilient operation, one she deliberately studies the ever-evolving culture of. Over the years, she has herself developed an unusually nuanced and complex view of how leaders can nurture their company's culture, including what parts of it they cannot control and how it can even be grown in the toughest times for actual human connection. Before Eventbrite became a global force for bringing people together, Julia was working in Hollywood and media and became fascinated with that concept.
0: I think that in hindsight, I've been able to identify some of the early indicators. But to be honest, I wasn't a kid who grew up you know, with a lemonade stand. I wasn't always trying to create businesses. I was a really focused um, dancer growing up, uh, ballerina and, and other forms of dance. And, uh, and I also was always focused on growing and learning and, you know, had a job at 14 and internships and multiple jobs throughout my college career. And so I was always just focused on the next step, but in hindsight, I realized now that the greatest indicator that I would make a great entrepreneur was that I loved to learn by doing. I really didn't like to sit in a classroom and I loved to, you know, get real experience, whether it was through early jobs in my teenage years, or it was most notably internships throughout my college years that allowed me to effectively through real life experiences and work deduce what I wanted to focus on
1: post-grad. Yeah, you didn't have that kind of classic path or that, I guess I should say, kind of new classic path of going to Harvard Business School and then starting a company, you know, straight away. You you actually did continue to learn by doing, by having a series of of jobs um, after school. Can you tell me about your career path and what it, how it kind of shaped up through those years? Sure. I
0: mean, I would say that I would concur that I didn't have a classic path and maybe even the new path is barked by, you know, dropping out of, college or uh, or starting a, a company you know out of your first job uh, in tech. My path was into television development and I knew that I loved uh, evoking emotion and energy in audiences through my own performing career, you know, early in my life. And I was really motivated by the creation process that was happening, particularly in cable TV. Um, way back when I was in, in the industry, which was uh, the very late 90s up to the early 2000s. And I found my calling in particularly television development because back then it was uh, as being a VC for um, for television and for great ideas and great content. And the network was really focused on Finding great talent and hearing those pitches, but also cultivating that idea into something that could be even greater, and eventually make it onto people's televisions or onto their computer screens.
1: Tell me about tell me about the very first seeds of Eventbrite. Then, um, where where did the idea come from, and what did it look like to you from the beginning um, before it even existed? Well, back when we started Eventbrite,
0: Renaud Visage, Kevin Hartz, and I. You know, all realized that there really wasn't a great way for anybody to be able to sell tickets to any kind of event. There was consumer software like Evite if you were hosting a birthday party or backyard barbecue. And then there was really expensive, kind of archaic software that was inaccessible if you weren't a large corporation hosting a conference. Um, and so we were really fascinated by the notion of creating something that was as easy to set up as Gmail and helping to, to bring that to anybody who wanted to gather other people around a common interest or passion. But we all kind of came to it from our own you know, experiences. And I came to it from the fascination of live experiences. I had Worked on researching a docu series project at FX that was around uh, fandoms, and you know, traveling around the country and going to these different conventions that were so niche. Uh, you, oftentimes, I didn't even know any of the backstory of the of the passion that was being celebrated in these in these different conventions, like Klingon conventions and some really kind of far out things. But feeling that palpable energy of people who Prior to the event, we're strangers and now we're coming together as as this vibrant community just time and time again. It really stuck with me and I became kind of obsessed about live experiences and about that as the media format that could actually disrupt uh, sitting at home and sitting on your couch and, and watching television. Kevin came to it from a uh, longer career in building microtransactional platforms. He was a seed investor in PayPal and went on to develop a few ideas built on the PayPal API. One of them, Zoom, X-O-O-M, is a money remittance platform for immigrants to send money back to their families better, faster, cheaper than the incumbents. So he was uh, very passionate about this idea of democratization, making something easy and accessible for everybody using technology. And Renault, as an engineer, obviously was fascinated about this idea of building something that was completely self-service at scale. And also his backstory is he is an incredible professional photographer. And I think that his passion being able to be you know, delivered to audiences and he could teach a skill as profit, that idea really resonated with him and the idea of empowering entrepreneurs to create their own businesses. This is prior to what we now know as the creator economy, but that idea of passion turning to profession or profit was something that was really
1: early on um, a, a very exciting vision for us. Yeah, so so Bruno came to it with this passion for the arts. You came to it with a passion for the arts. Um, I'm curious about Kevin and whether you had any hesitance in, in the idea of working with him.
0: <laughs> well, so uh, you know, again, hindsight being 2020, I'm in awe of the bravery that we both had to do this. And if you would have told me back then that we would have started a company together, gotten married six months later had our first child a year and a half after that, our second four years later, I would then take the role of CEO. Uh, we would go through what we've just gone through in the COVID crisis, and we would still be meeting up at 5 p.m. to play backgammon and have a margarita and be married. I think I probably you probably would have lost me. I would have lost the plot on that. That doesn't sound like a believable story to me. Um, so yes, it was a big decision. I think that um, we came to it very carefully. We weren't rash about it. But also, I think that at 25, I was a bit naive about what life would entail. And we always had the prioritization of what came first. We were engaged when we started Eventbrite. So we knew we'd be building a life in parallel. And we always knew that that life and eventually, you know, our marriage and eventually our, our children would have to come first. And we would have to always be prepared to make hard decisions. If that part of our life is suffering because we were building a company together. But I think the thing that people don't always realize is when you start a company, you don't know if it's going to become a viable business and then a big company. And so we just put one foot in front of the other and took it month by month. And we bootstrapped the company. We spent less than a quarter of a million dollars in the first two years of building and scaling eventbrite, the platform. And, you know, I think that really helped sow the seeds of this idea that this really was, uh, you know, a labor of love and somewhat of a family business. I think Renaud really the bravest person in this story. Um, and, you know, we always found it to be a privilege to be able to work together. We love it. And so we were very careful about making sure that that never became the issue.
1: That's fantastic. And I want to talk to you more about that. Um, But first, tell me a little more about those first two years. So you had, over the course of it, spent less than a quarter of a million dollars, you said. Was there a moment during that two years that you thought, this is not going to work? Or did come that moment where you thought, this is definitely working? Like, what was that progression there? Well, the moment that I
0: knew it would work was when we had originally rolled Eventbrite out to a small group of uh, tech bloggers who were ho- starting to host paid meetups alongside their the content that they were producing. Folks like Michael Arrington before TechCrunch Disrupt became a huge juggernaut of a, of a conference. Uh, and that was a great first group of customers because they were incredibly critical of our product and helped us you know, continue to build features and think about how we can make it even more intuitive and easy to use. The day that I realized we might actually build something of significance was when we realized that people were using it on the East Coast for speed dating events. (laughs) This kind of dates the founding of November. This is like the second coming of speed dating before the third coming of yeah. <laughs> speed dating, um, and, I <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: and uh, and I'll never forget. It was red carpet speed dating was the was the customer that I was I was focusing on. So I was all things people. Kevin was all things product, and Renault did everything to make it all come together and happen through engineering and, and software development, but. Seeing that we had this real-time ticket monitor map that was super hacked together in Kluge, but it was lighting up on the East Coast all of a sudden, and it was around these different types of events, totally different than, than tech meetups. I mean, I'm sure you could draw some hilarious. That's when it started to feel like, oh, wow. This is not just something that we're building for our backyard. This is something that's happening across the country and starting to be organically adopted. And very soon after that, Eventbrite started lighting up globally because we also built the original Eventbrite on the PayPal, plat- on the PayPal API, which allowed us to uh, sell tickets in like 110 countries. So it just started to slowly build. The question for us for a long time was, were we being too horizontally focused, meaning not focusing on a certain kind of event or a certain region? And would that ultimately end up you know, getting in our way, that lack of focus? And it was actually taking the contrarian view that allowed Eventbrite to grow so big in a very organic manner. Um, the second thing we did wrong was start the company together as a couple, right? That's, that was a no-no back in, in 2005. Um, and the third thing we did wrong was start the company with a founder who wasn't living in the same country as us, which also
1: is hilarious to think about these days. These right. days, it looks like you're just doing everything right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, that you had these sort of, uh, you know, apparent hurdles that that ended up being huge benefits for for the company and its ability to grow. Tell me, um, just real quickly, um, for the listeners, what was the original business model you set out for? Um, how important was revenue to you and and being profitable from the get go? And how has that shifted over the years?
0: Well. Both the mission and the business model have been adult tested and have stood the test of time. So, you know, that's one thing that consistently strikes me as pretty unique. We've never needed to pivot. And I think everlasting models are interesting because they're rooted in simplicity. So our business model was and is intrinsically linked to the success of our creators meaning we only charge a, a ticket fee on tickets sold. So when creators are selling tickets and they're, you know, building their businesses, that's when Eventbrite prospers. And the mission is to bring the world together through live experiences which at this point, you know, going through things like the financial crisis of 2008-2009 and most certainly recently, you know, still in the pandemic, time and time again, this notion of connectedness and humans needing to gather, and the live experience economy being something that's being propelled forward by that need and by that desire to spend time and money on experiences over material goods, it just keeps refreshing itself and getting actually even more critically important. And so that helps us focus on what's most important. And at the end of the day, what's most important is enabling our creators to be successful and to be able to build bigger businesses
1: on Eventbrite. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you using the word creators as applied to folks who are, you know, creating events and, and hosting. Um, It's, not something that you maybe would have used when you were starting out in those in the first five years. um but it's become the new way we look at the social landscape online um and through the the lens of the internet. um uh, now I want to talk to you also about just the massive changes that the pandemic brought to our abilities to gather and to host events. I know you did a quite a significant sort of pivot in your way of thinking at the beginning of the pandemic. But, but first, let me ask you about those kind of middle years and the growing of the company. Um, was there, I mean, I know you grew very, very fast um, based on, you know, the internet, the immediate international ability to use Eventbrite. But was there ever a moment in building your team in building, in growing the product and the audience that you thought like Oh my gosh, this is growing too fast. Like we can't hire enough. We can't handle this. Is there, was there that moment where it was like a little hard to handle the scaling, or or how did you handle the scaling?
0: So less so the business growth. I think Eventbrite is one of those companies that's had just year over year steady, solid growth that compounds and again is is um has a strong profit margin, has a very strong organic flywheel for growth. And so it's It's difficult to disrupt it. Well, we can get to how that ultimately was disrupted. But the year-over-year compounding growth is a really important part of Eventbrite. You don't see any years in our history where it was just like rocket ship growth, but actually it was every year was compounding and getting stronger year-over-year. And so that was a great benefit to us. Where I felt the stress of hyper-growth was really around the expansion of our team of Brightlings. So, you know, we started with just three of us for quite some time. And it wasn't until year two when we actually started to make enough money to hire other people. And it was around 2009 when we were about a group of 30, which is a team. I mean, you can gather that team around a few different pizzas and, you know, Get together. We used to sit around on couches and have a weekly chat called Heart to Hearts, uh, which was not named by one of the heartses, um, but still <laughs> sticks to this day. Very uh, cute. Very cute. <laughs> uh, and we we decided to raise our first round of institutional funding, which was not easy. We actually had gone out in two thousand eight and had pitched twenty seven VCs and received twenty seven nos. In two thousand nine, we went back out to the same group and received four offers because we had done, you know, what we said we were going to do in 2009. Now, four offers today sounds like a little bit, but compared to where we had come from and the time and the, you know, and the place, we were ecstatic. And we went with our first choice, which was Sequoia Capital. And we knew at that point where we wanted to go with the business, how to scale and what we needed to do to get there. And it was that inflection point where we did need to scale the team to get to where we wanted to go. We, need to, we needed to start building out some of the core functions of, of the business. And we were we had a plan uh, I'll never forget, the you know whiteboarding the plan to go from 30 to 100 in a year. And again, looking back on it, what I know is that it doesn't matter how many people it is, it's the relevant you know, expansion proportionate to who you, who you are today and where you're going. And so going from 30, which I considered to be a team, to 100, which I considered to be a company, caused me a lot of angst. And that was the point at which I had found, you know, uh, way more brilliant people to take on my, my functional role of marketing and customer service and finance. And I was you know, around 30 years old and, you know, had a two-year-old and we raised this money from Sequoia and I'm sort of in awe and terrified of, of them and of, of uh, both the, who's a dear friend and, and one of my greatest mentors. And I thought that they would maybe tap me on the shoulder and say, you've been great, but it's time to go. You're kind of (laughs) like, Random and what's what's your purpose? Um, I had this really weird nebulous title of president, so I, I actually had no idea what that meant, and I just didn't. I didn't want to get in the way, and I, I really wanted to be additive to Eventbrite's story and growth, but with a purpose. And so um, I also put that thought, that sort of big fear, together with the reality that Eventbrite is. Our firstborn. I mean, there is no way for us to unlink the feeling of you know unconditional loyalty and love that we have for the company, the customers, and the brightlings, and that you know very few people get to operate the company that they have founded. It's not just an entitlement. It's something you have to earn. And then I thought about the fact that we were going to scale from thirty to one hundred, and so many companies around us in the same vintage of two thousand and five, two thousand and six, We're starting to really lose sight of who they were as a company and their culture. And there was a lot of resets and a lot of things happening that were really hard around us. And so I looked at all of that and said, well, what can I do to actually help us grow a great company? And I came to Renault and Kevin and said, I want to come to the table of all the decisions we make as a business, looking at it through the lens of what it means to be a Breitling and what kind of company we are, who we are, how we work, how we show up. And they agreed. And, and so for the middle years of this story, I really worked almost entirely on hiring, retaining, motivating, rewarding brightlings. I have no HR background, but I had a clear sense of who we could be as a company and learned a lot about how to cultivate culture without you know, mandating it or, or making something up.
1: When we come back, I'll talk to Julie about why a company's culture doesn't have to be a happy one all the time, though it might have self-healing properties. But first, a quick break.
0: You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack.
1: Back then there wasn't, culture wasn't such a buzzword, right? It wasn't something that there was a a, a playbook for, an instruction manual for. How did you come to I'm, your ideals of what, what a company culture should be and what it should look like? Culture wasn't
0: sexy back then. It was thought of as the kind of, if you can maybe do it, do it, but it's also the soft stuff and really how does it draw it? You know, drive the top or bottom line. So, again, that's another way that things have changed and shifted over the years. So, I thought about it as culture being a manifestation of the people who are at the company at that time. And fundamentally, what that means is culture is not something to be preserved, it cannot absolutely be something that's stuck in time because as people come and go, it's constantly evolving. So it's more of like a living, breathing you know, organism than it is a bug stuck in amber. It's something that you have to constantly be intentional about, but also there is a bit of letting go that you have to do. And what I've learned now over the past decade or so is that culture is something that can be incredibly powerful. And it's something that grows in strength and compounds and starts to create self-healing properties or it governs itself if done right. And it also doesn't always have to be happy. Like if something is challenging in a company or if a company is going through a really hard time, the culture doesn't have to be the antidote to that. It can actually be the foundation from which you Go through the hard times and make the tough decisions. And every day, every single person in the company is making a series of cultural decisions to either contribute or to run counterculture to, you know, be in service of the community um, or not. And so that's that's the way I think about culture. So I think, you know, for us in those early days, we really aligned around our brand values because, the people we had in the company were building the product that the people we wanted to serve were using. And so it was completely intrinsically linked and that served us for um, probably like a hundred to almost a thousand in bright links.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. It's, it's a lot more nuanced of a view than I usually hear about culture. In your view, and and in the role you had during that time, what were some ways that you actually could nudge the culture or or amplify what was happening naturally amongst your team members? Um, any advice for other founders on how to hire right, how to how to conceive of that culture? Um, I think your description was fantastic, but but uh, I'd love a little more about the kind of the day to day and how to actually nurture it. Well, I think that culture and communication go hand in hand. So
0: if you if you struggle to communicate some of the really key concepts of either your strategy or what matters the most to you that is going to inherently stifle the growth of culture because it will be harder for your team to autonomously multiply <laughs> like you you know in the early days i would meet with every final candidate and that was such a luxury that i inherently new would be somewhat short-lived. I think I was able to make it to about 250 or 300 Brightlings. So I knew each Brightling as they joined the company and I had a familiarity with them. And I would go around our office when we were all were in San Francisco and I would say, hi, the person's first name. And if I couldn't say their first name as we're passing in the hallway or in the bathroom or in the kitchen, I would inter- reintroduce myself and be kind of shameless about it. And um, I met so many not brightlings that way. <laughs> you know, anybody who's in the office, I'm like introducing myself to, but like, that's one kind of funny thing about it where familiarity is something that's earned. It's a privilege. It's not an obligation. And So to me, building a company where there is familiarity and where people feel that and can see and experience that everybody from the CEO to the leadership team to people who've just started in their careers care about one another, that's incredibly sacred to us as a company. And it's something that you feel almost immediately. There's been a lot written and a lot analyzed around culture. I think we've tried to create a formula I think that runs counter to what actually culture is from my point of view. But I also do think that coming to it with strong intention of what kind of company are you trying to create? I mean, it is such a privilege to be able to grow a company that I approach it every day as something that I need to earn and that I am most excited about is the legacy of the company Eventbrite,
1: not just the business, but the company. I feel like now that Eventbrite is so much larger and now that so many companies out there are entirely virtual, whether that's temporary or whether it's not, do you have any tips for, her, for leaders and how to make that feeling of collegiality, of of closeness uh, even occur when we're all just little boxes on Zoom talking to one another?
0: I think it's in, we're in like the pre-dawn of how we'll work. So I think my first advice would be Try not to make too many predictions too quickly. <laughs> and try not to force the new normal to happen. I think as a society, globally, we are going through a, a tremendously traumatic time together, and not least of which is being socially isolated. I think we have to understand what problem we're solving for before we start designing the elegant solutions. I guess that would be my answer on, you know, how I approach it, which is, um, it's hard. It's difficult. One of my, I think, superpowers is empathy. I can feel people's energy and it has helped me become a stronger leader. I can't do that through the screen. It's just not possible for leaders. It's important to be okay going through something and not knowing all the answers even when everybody's asking you what you think and asking you to make predictions or to provide some assuredness. For us at Eventbrite, we have, I think, made a pretty good plan to be adaptable, you know, to be flexible, to meet the Brightling's needs, but we're a work in progress. So we're going to continue to evaluate, continue to experiment. You know, we're running work experiments right now around how we work. How do we not only create more space for people to get work done and not be on Zoom meetings all day, but also how do we appreciate the fact that we are a fully global company and time zones don't always match up perfectly? And how do we create greater global inclusivity during this time when we'll continue to be hiring all over the world? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, before we go on, I want to jump you back in time a little bit to uh, one of the most fascinating years in Eventbrite's history, 2016. Can you tell me the big thing that happened in 2016 and bring me through, I guess, your, your next steps to taking the company public?
0: I feel like it's a pop quiz. <laughs>
1: 2016. Um,
0: I stepped into the CEO role in 2016, and it was not exciting. <laughs> To be honest, <laughs> it was, <laughs> oh, um, you know, I think it was scary and kind of surreal for me uh, as a first time CEO and anyone who says any different is lying. So I did though have the benefit of having incredible mentors. I mentioned Ruloff, another one, Sean Moriarty, uh, Lori Norrington, Catherine August Weld. I had these types of people around me and on the board who not only saw the opportunity in me, but also were ready and willing to be that supporting cast behind me to say, hey, you can do this and kind of push me forward. Um, again, I don't think founders should be entitled to run their companies because I think being a CEO and being a founder are two very, very different roles. I think it's a really huge benefit for a company when a founder can adapt into the CEO role and also continue to bring forth the vision and the, oh gosh, the like resilience and steadfastness that a founder brings. So even when I feel like we are walking through a desert, I know that I'm not going to be the one to stop, right? So it's she who stays in it the longest wins for me. And that is, has been one part of how I've looked at this role. The other is that I learn something new every day. I mean, talk about learning by doing. This has been the most accelerated learning of my life, and I'm so grateful for it. And the minute I feel like I've just got something perfected, I, I get humbled again over and over and over again, several times a day usually, but also just broadening my perspective and thinking about leadership and what the company needs daily is just like the fuel that keeps me going. But I also think that I had an example, a really great example in Kevin. Watching him for 10 years lead the company and also being mentored by him and coming up under under him as you know a leader was really helpful. And then I don't know many people who take, again, who have taken on the role of CEO and have the previous CEO <laughs> sleep. In their bed and also their chairman. Thankfully, we have a lot of great humor in our house, but that was <laughs> different. Um, because I couldn't exactly show up to a board meeting and, and be like, oh, well, the glass guy, you know, uh, because I also was helped grow the company. So I think just passing the baton and taking it to the next stage, it was not easy for us, but it also was incredibly gratifying in the in the way that it was challenging and that it forced us to look at things differently. And then finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that our children have grown up with Eventbrite in the background and being a part of Eventbrite. And so um even though maybe they didn't really understand it, there were a lot of jokes around our house about mommy stealing daddy's job, which <laughs> kind of persists till like even today. <laughs>
1: I love that. Yeah, I love that. Personally, my book um, came out before my husband's first book. And so my kids saw that and they were like, Papa, when are you going to write a book now?
0: (laughs) This is the We Are the Nerds book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah.
1: Oh, thanks. Um, So you had just like a wild... Last four years then you took two years after um becoming CEO, you took the company public. Two years after that, the pandemic hit, and you were you, you laid off, you know, almost half of, of your staff to kind of cope with it immediately and kind of transformed the business um in a way. What what's happened since then? What's the pandemic brought to Eventbrite?
0: In short, what I learned through that really harrowing journey and and really sad time was that. You have two options when you're faced with something that could be the death of a company, which by the way, let's just step back for a minute. Nowhere in the tabletop exercises around disaster planning did you know anybody contemplate gathering not being possible, right? I mean, there were a lot of different things that we thought about when we thought about what could go wrong. And anyone who says that they were prepared for the pandemic at the scale, I think, is also lying. So when it happened, it was actually not surprising, which is strange to say right after that, right? It, it, it was just very clear what was about to happen. And so it became very black and white. There was no gray. What started as this great crisis, we were really the tip of the sphere alongside travel, became an opportunity to... Completely reshape the business to be prepared to support our creators through their pivoting to online events and then rebuilding their in person events and surviving through this really harsh period of time. And that be- brought us closer to our customers. It completely focused our strategy, and everything that we took with us was a necessity. I think that type of event actually can be a great fortunate opportunity for a company. Um, It's not without its incredible sacrifices and hardship, right? So I think it it also changed us as a company going through something like that. It made us stronger, but it also made us appreciate each other even more. And now when I look at people, you know, just today I was in a company meeting and the three people that were presenting our strategy to the hundreds of new Brightlings that we've now, you know, welcomed into the company in the last year, they all had been there. They'd all been through that. They were all there when we, when we refined and focused our strategy to focus on a frequent creator, which is, you know, really our core customer and to focus on continuing to scale our self-service product above all else. And it shows because it, the, the resonance, And the passion for which they speak about the choices that we've made are really authentic. And I think that everybody will ask themselves, where were you during the pandemic? And I think the people that have worked on Eventbrite and have built this new chapter have so much to speak about in terms of what they've what they've experienced and what they helped create. And I am so proud of them. So the future of Eventbrite is that we are spring loaded for the multiple recoveries that will happen. You know, when we th- we think day in and day out about creators of live events and consumers of live events and how can we make that match happen faster and how can we help creators spend less time on the kind of technical aspects of selling and promoting their events and be able to spend more time on creating great content. And so as we look forward, we are poised and ready you know we've seen these moments these like incredible moments of reopening and regathering that continue to get stronger and stronger as we go through each cycle of the pandemic and our creators are super resilient they're already thinking about you know how do they build businesses that both have online events and in person events and how do we how do they scale that and promote that to new audiences how do they build into the more global audience they've now acquired through online events while also bringing back unique and local events that are so incredibly important to our community. So we're focused on how do we build those products faster? How do we help be that tailwind? And I think that, you know, as I look forward to the next three years, I think that overall, and this is a, at a global scale, which is breathtaking, people have started appreciating the time that they have in their life more. and. They certainly have appreciated being connected and being together, whether it's virtually when we can't be together in person, but most notably when we can be together in person. I mean, I'm sure you have a really indelible memory now of that first gathering you went to when cases had gone down and we could get back together again. These are the things that I think bring us together as community and as people. And so as we look forward Eventbrite has a mission to help create the antidote to social isolation because this is the next big crisis that we're facing are the mental impacts that have been adversely affecting people as we've all been isolated especially young people. And so beyond just our product and profit we're really I think grasping a new sense of purpose and are really excited to be thinking about how can we help through the mission of gathering people together through live experiences, actually and very methodically combat social isolation, which I think is, again, very widespread and has been
1: extremely detrimental. Well, I think that's a very worthwhile mission. And thank you so much for joining me today, Julia. Thank you, Christine. Julia, what stuck most with me was her refreshingly nuanced view of company culture. Whatever your company culture is, it's not static, and it's not even in your control most of the time as a leader. It's like a complex, shifting organism that each member of your team feeds into and feeds off of. and It can't be forced to be pleasant all the time, but it can be resilient and even self-healing. I also appreciated that Julia was candid about the company's ongoing challenges and all of our challenges at this moment in time, connecting, if we can call it that, mostly through screens. She says that it's such a hard time for leaders when everyone is asking you to make predictions or provide assurances to not know all the answers, but that that's okay. It's okay to be going through something. But perhaps at such an uncertain moment, at the cusp of many shifts in business and the world, it's not okay to be inflexible. Julia spends her time evaluating what's working, running experiments and trying to build in inclusivity for her global workforce, and making sure the company is as nimble and flexible as possible, to meet whatever the future brings. That's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss out on the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend who would love our show, please send them a link to your favorite episode. And if you have any ideas for founders you'd love to hear from, drop us a note at whatiknowatinc.com. You can also let me know directly on Twitter at Ligorio. Our producer who is on vacation this week and therefore does not get a clever joke, is Joshua Christensen. Stepping in this week were Blake Odom and Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.